we've medicalized mortality and medicine prioritizes safety, but safety at what cost? That's the question at the heart of Kate Schneider's graphic novel, Headland. At the beginning of the book, Ruth, an older woman, has a stroke. She gets taken to the hospital and spends the rest of the book there, except for the worlds she explores in her imagination. Headland is based on Kate's experience with her own grandmother and a woman named Audrey who Kate cared for. Today on Interstates, we talk about how our medical system approaches death and dying, and also about working on a graphic novel for six years. Plus, IU Cinema director Alicia Cosma has a new way to fund independent films. That's all coming up right after this. Welcome to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Alex Chambers. It's not news to say the medical system wasn't set up to take care of people's souls. Still, it's worth thinking about what happens to your soul when you have to go into the hospital. Or into hospitals, since the book we'll be discussing takes place in England. The book is called Headland. It's a graphic novel about an older woman named Ruth who suffers a stroke in the first few pages. She spends the rest of the story in the hospital, or physically in the hospital at least, since we end up following her farther and farther into her own mental world as she treks into a colorful unknown with a tortoise at her side. But there's something else you should know about the book, too. It's not your typical graphic novel. Clean, inked lines, speech bubbles, lots of action. It's all done in pencil. Some colored pencil, but mostly graphite. And the drawings were made on rough paper. The pacing is different, too. Not that much happens. And yet you totally get drawn into the world. There's such attention to Ruth's perceptions. She spends a lot of time staring into the bare corners of her hospital room. And her expressions, tired, out of it, angry, but also finding some peace in the wilderness in her mind. Kate Schneider is the author, and she based Headland on two real people, her grandmother and a woman with dementia named Audrey, for whom Kate served as a caregiver soon after her own grandmother died. I invited Kate in to talk about the book itself, which is gentle and beautiful. The challenge of caring for a person's inner life as much as their bodies as they change in old age, and her life as an artist. So, Kate Schneider, welcome to Interstates. Hi, thank you. So, let's start with your inspiration for the book. Can you tell me about the two women who inspired the character Ruth? Yeah. So, my grandma was... How to describe her? She was fierce, and Audrey was really fierce as well. My grandma died right before I started working with Audrey. Kate was living in Philadelphia at the time. Audrey also lived in Philly. In a beautiful apartment. And she needed care because she had dementia. Yeah. Before Kate's grandmother died, she lived in Bath in England. The two of them were from the same place. From the same part of England? Yeah. No, Bath. Both from Bath. In the same neighborhood. Oh my God. So I just feel like there was this, like... And I, and I really don't, you know, I don't prod at the universe, <laughs> but there's this thread. There's just this thread. It's not like I thought, you know, I mean, they're so different. My grandma was, she was so like martyr-y and, and Audrey was like this diva. And so I think they were, they were the two points on a, the Cartman's triangle. But I really just, I loved working with both of them. I mean, obviously, I loved working with Audrey, and I loved being my grandmother's granddaughter. That thread went beyond the timing, Kate's grandmother passing away just as Kate was meeting Audrey. It went beyond the neighborhood in Bath. Some of the connections were smaller. They both drank the same sherry, the Bristol cream sherry. And some felt more significant. My grandma would, she had this tortoise, and then Audrey would love to watch the birds. And so I think there was this, like, connection there with watching and caring so much about animals. They both had a lot, um, so much that was unarticulated. And 
there was just this way that I felt like my book was like a way to explore the puzzle of them as people. At what point did you realize that you wanted to do a book about them? I I always kind of like zigzagged between art and writing. Sometimes I would think, okay, art is my thing and writing, that's secondary. And then I thought, no, no, um, writing is my thing and art is secondary. And I think at some point I just thought, why don't I just do both? And I kind of talked my way into it um, because it was uh, nobody said no (laughs) in in English. Um, So I just did it. Yeah. What do you mean nobody in English? Nobody in uh, the English department (laughs) said no to me doing a graphic novel. And it was kind of silent. Like most of it is sort of, I mean, so there was a first iteration of the book, which was like me as a part of it. Hmm. And I go to my, um, my grandma and it's sort of like a dual coming of age story. And, um, and then I took myself out of it because I, I just think I needed to, I needed to put myself in it to take myself out. And then I realized like, okay, but yeah, there was there was really I wanted to live inside this story for a long time. What was the coming of age that happened in the first draft? So, it was kind of me coming to terms with my um like looking outside myself and she was dying. It was like a connector. I, I could see her. I don't know. It was really kind of, I thought it was strong, but I didn't think that, I didn't want to start there. I didn't want to start with myself. And I just realized I I could be so much freer when I took myself out of it, when I changed her name to Ruth. I mean, she was my grandma for a long time. Mm -hmm. It was autobiographical. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And then I kind of realized I could like, this wasn't her story. You know, it was... This is my story of her story. And that freed me up a lot and allowed me to combine and play. And the tortoise was like this element of humor that I could bring in. Because I think that comics, you're already in danger of being so heavy handed because you're saying and you're showing. So I think that there's something you kind of got to break. You got to break it up. And I think that the tortoise provided that opening and allowed some dialogue that she could talk to somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because she can't really talk otherwise. No. Yeah. And I mean, she's scaling mountains and she's going through caves and she's talking. She's doing all these things that she can't do. The pacing, I guess, is one thing that I found really lovely. You know, it starts with this woman, Ruth, washing dishes in this old house, this, you know, old furniture and these old couches. And it all looks really dated from a perspective of today, but not necessarily like ratty or in bad shape, just, you know, different styles. Well, they were drawn from reference photos. From your grandmother's house. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it was very convincing. <laughs> so did you know you were going to be doing this? I did, yeah. So I was. I worked on it for like six years. Over those six years, the story kept changing. It wasn't until pretty late in the process that Kate realized she could combine her grandmother and Audrey into one character. And I think that's really what also like freed me up because originally there was this storyline of like grief and the, the grief would be this this thing that was a portal into the the landscape of your imagination. And and then I realized, like, well, Audrey is, like, literally looking at the clouds and, like, imagining her husband, who she lost in September. She was imagining him reclining and, like, in different positions. And I think because of the, the symmetry, again, 
and the fact that they were like both they held hands in my mind it was pretty beautiful i think were you working on the book already when you met audrey yeah i was i uh i mean i i kind of wanted to show it to her but i didn't i think i didn't i mean i know i didn't <laughs> <laughs> Um, because I think it just felt too, I knew she'd see herself in it. And I, I knew she'd also like all the particularities of her character. I mean, I smoothed over them a lot, but I don't know. Both women are in there for me. Are there things in there that you didn't want her to see? I think I think Audrey I knew I didn't want my grandma to see it. Why? Um she my grandma was so she held me so tightly and she she held my mother so tightly and I think that was the thing that made you feel like you wanted to wriggle away and and it was that tension you know and I just knew that I needed this to be my story I just I I knew that and for Audrey I thought actually the opposite that she'd she'd make it hers (laughs) so I think with my grandma she'd she'd see like everything that was sort of disturbing about it and and like Jesus, uh, you know, and then Audrey would, I don't know, be too possessive. And so it's sort of these interesting things that I I haven't, uh, clearly I haven't really explored too much, but (laughs) I, yeah, I think that for, for, for whatever reason, I just, I knew in my gut that I did not want either of them to see it. I got close with Audrey and then I thought, no way. Um, and she, and Audrey's still alive. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hmm. So you could still show it to her. I know. Maybe she'll <laughs> see still... it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe I'll still. Maybe I'll show it to her. That's that's not a resolved. No, it's yet. not. I, you have to get back to me on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's interesting to think about. Like you were, not necessarily immediately thinking about dementia, but you were thinking about grief even before you had. The grief, it seems like. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I put my grandpa in there, and I took him out, and I put him in again, and I took him out. And I just thought it was more powerful to to leave him out and to let, let home be uh, this thing that people could interpret whatever, you know, however they wanted to. I don't even know if, if she says home at any point, but I think there's this feeling that, like Audrey and my grandma both referred to it as I want to go home and like <sighs> grief, I think, was this like portal into nature. Nature doesn't ask anything of you. And I think that's really beautiful and it can kind of give you what you need when you need it. Yeah. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Kate Schneider, author of the graphic novel Headland, published earlier this year by Fantagraphic Books. When we come back, Kate talks about the process of making the book and how we should all keep drawing. This is Interstates. Stick around. Interstates, Alex Chambers. Kate Schneider started writing Headland as a memoir about her aging grandmother. By the time the book was done, six years later, Kate had combined her grandmother and a woman with dementia who she had cared for into one fictional character, Ruth. The book opens with Ruth washing dishes alone in her house. She sits down to watch TV and suddenly everything goes fuzzy. I asked Kate if she could give me a rundown of what happens in the book. Sure. So, there's <laughs> not much to talk about. <laughs> yeah, um, but, I mean, uh, we keep saying that, but there's still, there's a lot of different moments. Sure. I think that it's in how I do it, but not what it is. But right. 
so my grandma or Audrey or Ruth, she has a stroke, and we kind of move in and out of her world and her imagined world. We get deeper and deeper into that imagined world. And I don't actually even know if I want to clarify that it's imagined. I mean, I think that that even is kind of like, ooh, you know, I think some people have referred to it as the other world or like the inner world or a third world. <laughs> but yeah, so she she gets kind of pulled back again and again. And I think that that's really something that is hard for her because she doesn't really want to be pulled back. And I think that's the thing that we have a hard time hearing in America and in like the world (laughs) is that we've medicalized mortality and medicine prioritizes safety but safety at what cost? And I think that this tortoise was this reminder of life, like this, oh, the trees, and I can't, I can't get up, and like, help me, and can I come with you? And I think that at some point she's like, <laughs> enough. I don't want this anymore. And I think it's brutal because we we don't want it for her because I think we're not really ready to accept the the fact that she is done and that maybe she needs to take her next her you know there's the little bird that joins her and that there's another room that she goes into and we don't follow her in there. I don't think we're all ready to accept the fact that when the tortoise, I want to say right now that I think the tortoise is okay. I'm glad to hear that. And you're saying this because she gets frustrated with the tortoise yeah, and she, ends up picking it up and shaking it yeah. really angrily. And, and it's very disturbing. It is very disturbing, I think. And I'd like to say uh, that I believe that the tortoise is okay and has had and has had some creatures come and care for it and, like, maybe a little leaf and, and like, some droplets of water and maybe, you know, patched it up with some leaves. And I think that's that's very nice of, of the creatures. I'm glad to hear that because when we last see it in the book, its shell is cracked. There's, like, blood coming out of its shell, although it looks peaceful. And, yes, well. you know, but, but I'm glad to hear that, you know, yeah, that it does end up okay. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I, I don't think we... You know, I think we all make our we all make our priorities. I think if we have the freedom, we should all make our priorities with life. It's like I want to I want to eat uh, however I want and die at seventy nine, and that's my choice. Like you make deals, you know, and I think that this was her deal. This was her. She was, Ruth, was really ready to go, and she really didn't want that catheter put in. Mm-hmm. That was another really powerful scene because, like, that's when I was talking about her expression at the beginning of the, yeah. you know, in, in the intro, that her express, the intensity of her no and, like, her, the, the shape of her lips was, yeah. was so powerful. You could really get a sense of how angry and how much she didn't want it. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's like it's it's like who's it for? I mean, is it for the hospital covering its ass? Is it for the daughter who doesn't want to let go? I think it's all of the above. Did you see moments like that either with Audrey or yes. your grandma? Yeah, I saw it with with my, well, I saw glimpses of it with my grandma, but I saw it with Audrey. She was fighting against actively dying and was saying, you know, I want to go home, I want to go home, but she, she didn't want to go home. She was, 
uh, she was pretty much like kind of raging against the dying of the light or whatever. Um, I think that she she says it, but she doesn't, I don't think she always knows what she's saying. But I think on the other hand, our whole bodies are like wired to not die, you know, I guess, right? That seems, but I think that uh, Audrey would be happy to die if she could just die peacefully. But I think that because there's this thing that's like, no, don't die. Yeah, she doesn't want to die. We don't get to die among our loved ones. We die in a hospital. <laughs> and... I think that, like, you know, yeah, I said before, but, like, we've, we've... Medicine prioritizes safety. But safety at what cost? And I think that safety really doesn't account for dignity... It doesn't account for comfort. It doesn't account for any of those things. You know, there's just, uh, it's like, are you safe? And then also there's the question of what life, like what are you fighting for? Are you fighting for a life that's empty where you're literally just a heartbeat? No brain signal even maybe? <laughs> yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of, work to be done. And I hope that this book, I mean, Jesus, I hope it kind of shed some light on the internal, like what could be going on for them. I think there's just so much poetry and there's so much that that could be explored, that could be if, if we weren't fighting against everything, if we weren't fighting against the clock, which is, what, two more years, maybe? I think hospice is very generous. Like, it's a generous thing. It's a very generous thing. And put them on palliative care, get them comfortable, and then if they're able to ask them questions and like tell their stories because older adults and elderly folks have so much wisdom and they've literally like seen it all and we're not asking questions. Um, yeah, I just, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think in the book too, we don't, you're right. We get a sense that people want to take care of Ruth physically. They want to make right. she doesn't want to eat. They want to keep, they keep wanting to feed her. Right. But they're um, both the her daughter and the, I think we, there are two different nurses. I don't think they ever ask how she's seem, doing. How she's doing? No. Yeah. Yeah. They're very concerned about her physical care, and I don't think they liked the answer if they got the answer. <laughs> but I think you have to ask the question. And by the way, I want to say that, like, my mom wasn't even there. Like, th this is all imagined my, you know. But, yeah, I think that... I think we have to ask the question, and I think we have to be ready to hear it. We have to bear the truth if we're going to ask for the truth. And what is the question? Are you ready to go? And I think that it's a really generous question. I think it's actually a kind question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're so anti that. We're so scared of uh, death and we have we've medicalized everything <laughs> medicalized birth medicalized death it's it's a big fight to have it any other way we see that fight in headland in ruth's struggle to stay human in her sterile hospital room the drawings also have the touch of caring hands 
It's not a book that was designed on a computer. I told Kate, having it all done in pencil, give it a kind of tenderness. Mm, that's very sweet. I There are some moments that are watercolor and also that have a crumpled up. I, I, I remember doing this, um, <laughs> I crumpled up pages and I, yeah, yeah, there we go. Um, it's sort of a, I crumpled it up, lay it flat and drew over it with charcoal and I, I don't know. Yeah. So tell me about the, uh, the decision to do it this way. Okay, so comics weren't ever a part of my childhood. They weren't even a part of my teenhood. I mean, first of all, my parents just informed so much of my childhood with baby baby books and and picture books and the snowman and Posey Simmons and like all these British children's books because my mom's British. Yeah, so I think that I was very... I was very inspired by British children's books. And I kind of think there's more, like, vocabulary. There's more versatility in children's books. I think that we imagine that children have, that they're, like, delighted to see more worlds. But I think that we need it, too. Like, I really think we do. And... I don't know why we stopped drawing, <laughs> going all over the place, but I think that we don't. I think that uh, Linda Berry said, like, you know, at some age around, like, between 10 and 12, we kind of just, like, put down the pencil and never return. And and I think it's so tragic because we all start drawing. Like, we all started drawing when we were little. And, and then at some point, like, the... Uh, the artist emerges in like fourth or fifth grade and everyone else is like, oh God, and puts down their pencil. <laughs> and like, so I think that, um, I think that we, we really need it. And, um, and I'm lost. Where am I? <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was asking what made you decide to do the book in this style. Okay. <laughs> wow. I've really strayed from that. Um, I think that this was like it was a story that I could live in for a long time and it was a way that I could imagine making it. Like for example, I made a a book uh Dewdrop Diary and that was more meticulous and rich and I couldn't possibly sustain that over this many years. So I think that there was just this combination of you know, necessity and also, like, it was pleasurable. It was it was fun. It was fun. The reward was making it, honestly. That's cool. Especially since you said you haven't really got any money for it. But. Well, exactly. Yeah. I'm waiting for that. <laughs> the reward better be making it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's exactly what somebody said. I, I can't remember who said it, but it's like, the act of writing better be the reward because you're sure as hell not going to make any money from it. Yeah. And it's like, oh. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, there are very few of us, even I think for the people who do end up making money. And I think it's probably like you want to have your work out there and you want to know that it's affected people somehow. But Oh, my God. Yeah. The people who are writing to me these days are just like, I feel so moved by the people who like, I don't know, there was somebody on Instagram who said, like, my dad died of Alzheimer's. And I'm just like, you know. There's just nothing like it to touch somebody and to feel like I gave them a possibility into seeing. And they're a writer, too. And I think that there's a lot of there's a lot that was possible because I'm not writing. I'm not writing about my mom. I'm writing about my grandma. So there's a kind of like artistic license that I think happens with a generation removed. But I don't know. It was really beautiful. It was like a gift to me. And, you know, I mean, the book is is hopeful. I didn't say this a little earlier, but it feels it feels so hopeful at the end. Yeah, I'm glad because I think a lot of people feel like, oh, God, really? That's it? 
<laughs> I mean, the end is a little surprising. Mm. I'm trying to decide about spoilers. It's not exactly a plot kind of book. No, but, it's you know, really not. Spoilers, but, <laughs> I think um, I, I think I did just say like, so the tortoise gets smashed. <laughs> right. That's right. It's pretty close to the end. <laughs> pretty close to the end. Um, um, and you know, and I'm just gonna say, seeing her walk off into the night, into the colorful, yeah. beautiful night, uh, feels like she's getting what she wants. Yeah. Do see it that way. I really do. Because she's, however you interpret that, whether it's to join her husband, whether it's to go off and just like go into the next land, she's joined with her little bird. And I think, you know, going from the land dwelling to the air is very. I liked that. So thinking a little bit more about the the style, was it hard to think about turning this into a published graphic novel in the style? Or were you kind of like, well, this is what I'm doing? Yeah, this is what I'm doing. Also, like, I feel like I should say, because this isn't how everybody works, but I don't script things first. I think that I... Just things appeared to me in combinations of images and mostly images. And I mean, this is not advisable, but I would often like make a thing and being like, oh, that's what I meant to do. Not because I made it, but because that was not what I made. And <laughs> scrap that. <laughs> and I think that's the process of writing. But when you're drawing it, too. Oh, boy. <laughs> it's like. Yeah, years and years down the road. So I think that there is like a, you know, two steps forward, ten steps backwards. <laughs> but I think, again, I was like, I wanted to live inside this story for a long time. It carried me through many chapters of my own life, hmm. two heartbreaks. <laughs> it was just like, I'm going to do this and, and I am going to just, I'm going to finish it. I'm going to finish whatever this is, and then I'll see if somebody wants it. Yeah. Maybe I will show it to Audrey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm starting to get excited about yeah. it. Maybe. I don't know. I think I will. As, as usual, I just have to let everybody have their experience with it. Yeah. And... You know, she's going to see herself in it, and that's okay, because she's in it. And we all have the same experience—or, sorry, we all have different experiences of the same things anyway. So why not this? We should do a follow-up then if afterward. OMG, can I lock it in now? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not? You know, just why not? It's—, it's uh, I think she'll be proud of me. She's worked with me for, I mean, we don't work together anymore, but I worked with her for two years, and she'll be very proud of me, I think. And um, I think I'll, I'll like to show her the, the page where she looks at the bird. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good page. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well... Kate, thanks so much for doing this, for taking this time. Thank you so much for having me and asking me these thoughtful questions. It's, yeah, it's been a delight. Thanks. Kate's book, Headland, is out now from Fantagraphic Books. I want to jump in here and say that Kate mentioned she was dealing with some brain fog when we talked. We found out why a few days later. She had a seizure, and when she went to the hospital, they found a brain tumor. She had surgery, went through intensive chemo and radiation, and is now down to chemo once a month. Here's hoping she can be free from hospitals and healthy very soon. Okay, it's time for a short break. When we come back, Alicia Cosma tells us about a new organization that's helping indie filmmakers find money. You could be a part of it too. This is Interstates. We'll be right back. It's Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. 
Alicia Kazma, our friend down the hill and the director of the IU Cinema, came in last week for our Midwestern movie segment. She had to wait a minute for me to get set up. There were no headphones in here. What? What kind of podcast studio is this? I know. <laughs> I like that you call it a podcast studio. That's what it is. Not isn't a radio. It? Well, it's a. I mean, most of the people in here do radio. Really? And think of themselves as radio. And I like. I kind of like that you like said podcast because. Yeah. That's, I feel like, where things are going, and... And I love podcasts. I do want to say that I also love and believe in radio, and I'm not just saying that to my employers. But, you know, I imagine plenty of you listeners are not listening to the broadcast version of this show. Anyway, more about podcasts down the pike. In the meantime, we've got a different indie production culture to talk about. Specifically, a new way for independent and aspiring movie producers to fund their work. It's not just about calling your dentist anymore. Uh, That'll make sense in a minute. Here's Alicia. One of the things that comes along with um, kind of movie news these days is budgets. When we talk about films, we often hear $250 million budget, $350 million budget, or this movie made... $150 $150 million at the box office. There's a way in which economics has become infused into just like public conversation around filmmaking contemporarily that really hasn't existed before. Hmm. And these numbers are huge. They are so huge they are like unfathomable. Yeah. Like $350 million may as well be $14 billion. They're just both the same unimaginable numbers. Like who cares how big they are? And right. There's no, like, real conception of what that means, even though we throw around these terms so frequently. And it has come to a point where it seems like if you want to make a movie, even if you want to make, quote, a small movie, you're still working in tens of millions of dollars. Um, But that's not really the case. Or I should say it's not necessarily the case. When we talk about big-budget filmmaking, really just talking about any type of Hollywood filmmaking. It's not just blockbusters that have – giant budgets, although their budgets are certainly inflated, um, multi, multi-million dollar filmmaking is really just kind of the norm for Hollywood now. But thankfully, there has always been a bit of a respite for that and that we have always had independent filmmaking in some way, shape or form. And one of the things that has made them truly independent has been their ability to fund films outside of like a mainstream Hollywood financial schema. Um, there's like this apocryphal kind of story that it, back in the day, like in the 30s, it was dentists that you hit up. Like dentists were the people <laughs> that had extra money that you could go and like ask to invest in your films. There's this like a truly phenomenal um, person named Ed Wood, who was also a truly phenomenally bad filmmaker. Yeah. He's like known for being a terrible filmmaker. I really recommend watching his Plan 9 from Outer Space. Um And his big thing was, like, he would go to optometrists and dentists and podiatrists and just, like, hit them up for, you know, $5,000 here, $7,000 here. And that's how he would cobble together money to make his films. And even through the 90s, through, like, you know, at that point, like, the third independent film uh, explosion, you had a lot of people financing films on credit cards, Mm -hmm. asking their family for money, you know. Dropping out of college and using those tuition checks or, again, still back in this, like, dentist phase of, like, just asking professionals who are also cinephiles who maybe had some disposable income to invest in their films for one of, like, maybe 6,000 producer credits at that point, right? right? Just because it feels good, right? Yeah. And it's just, like, a fundamental fact, I think, that when people like film, they're willing to help film exist. And so that was really the thing that undergirded that. Hmm. Um, Now we've moved into a new type of independent film financing, one that is much more sustainable than just like, you know, picking out your local (laughs) dentist from the phone book. Yeah, (laughs) much more sustainable. Um, And it's thanks really to online crowdfunding. So Mm -hmm. everyone's a little bit familiar with crowdfunding already. Um, But what happened in probably like the late 2010s. I don't know a good way to say that. That's a 2012 is the year Alicia's talking about. Was um, an online platform developed solely purpose-built 
for film and television funding and purpose built for film and television funding for people who did not already have big industry connections, people who weren't like benefits of nepotism, you know, people who um, didn't have the dentist with the deep pockets in the corner, (laughs) just like everyday people who wanted to be storytellers and who wanted to be filmmakers. Um, And this is a platform called Seed and Spark. So it is open for anyone to use. Um, and it's a crowdfunding page, but that crowdfunding page also acts like a registry system. So it doesn't just say, I need $10,000 to make my movie. Please help me, and I'll send you a DVD in the mail once it's done, right? Like a lot of other straight more like a lot of other crowdfunding platforms that aren't built for for filmmaking do, right? Something like a GoFundMe or a Kickstarter, Indiegogo, or something like that. It tells you exactly what the film's budget is, exactly what that money is going to, exactly how much they have and what they need. And it allows individuals to contribute at a level that's comfortable to them, but also lets them see how that makes an impact, how that makes a difference, right? Like, it's one thing to say, I need $1,000 to edit my film. It's much different to say, hey, I need an editor for an hour. It's $150, yeah, right? right? You can actually see where that money is going. You can pay for an hour of editing. You can pay for an hour of editing, yeah. right? And an hour of editing is a tremendous help, right? Um, and one of the other nice things about Seed and Spark is that if you don't have money, but you have equipment or talent, you can donate that too. Ah, so nice. it's not just about open your wallet. It's like, do you have a camera? Are you an editor? Yeah. Like, do you have this piece of AV equipment that I need and you're in my area? You can loan stuff out to them or you can loan services out to them too. Um, so it's a much more communal way of working that's not totally dependent on how much money you can give somebody or lump sum fundraising essentially. And the really great thing about it is that because it's purpose-built for film and television, you can watch the thing on the platform once it's done. Ah, very nice. So it's not just like you're donating into the void or you're donating into the ether. You can see this thing once it's finished, right? It's like a. It's also a streaming service. It's also a streaming service, but only for the back, only for the backers, right? Right. right. Um, yeah. They raise an average of like $14,000 per project, and about 75% of their projects get totally funded. It charges a much lower commission than um, other crowdfunding sites, and it also offers the opportunity for backers to cover the commission. To cut weight. So any crowdfunding site takes a commission of the money oh, raised. Oh, I see. Oh, the, com- the commission to the, the site To itself. the site, yeah. Ah. So Stevens Burger's like, wow. they take, so Kickstarter takes like 8%. Indiegogo t- takes something like 7 or 8%. Um, GoFundMe is like the Wild West. Uh, who knows what they do? Um, Seed and Spark takes just 5%, and mm-hmm. they have an option to say, like, no, I want to cover that 5%, so this filmmaker doesn't have to pay anything. Nice. And so one of the things it's done is really allowed an entirely new cadre of filmmakers who haven't had access to um, the networks, <coughs> haven't had access to the equipment or the funds to get their stories out there. Um, a lot of those have been filmmakers of color, that simply have not been let into the system, into the pipeline that lets you produce this type of work. And so it's been a tremendous help um, in really bringing different types of stories, different types of storytellers, and then just different types of films that we get to see at the end of the day. Um, They've done a phenomenal job. And I have, maybe unsurprisingly, an example from the Midwest hey, glad of to hear someone it. who's utilizing Seed and Spark. Um, so Caitlin Johnson is a director and a writer and producer who's originally from the south side of Chicago. She's got no one in her family who's in the film business, um, not even close. <laughs> it was something that was a dream of hers. And she's kind of been out there grinding the pavement and like blood, sweat and tearsing until she's able to do what she wants to do. Um, her work is really specifically focused on providing storytelling outlets for marginalized and underserved communities. And she's invested in those communities being able to tell their own stories, specifically through independent filmmaking, as a way to not have to compromise either the stories or the vision, 
by, through dentist money or through the Hollywood <laughs> machine or something else. Right. And so a key ingredient to the work that she has produced and is in the process of producing is being able to fund that communally in order to maintain the integrity of the project. Yeah. So her first foray into directing was in 2018, where she co-created and directed a web series that went on to tremendous acclaim and won a bunch of awards. It's called Seeds. And it was a really great kind of introduction to her vision of how um, alternative storytelling can go and what it means to not have to compromise your vision and whose stories you can tell when you don't have to compromise those visions. So Seeds follows four young black women in Chicago just trying to navigate their life and figure out how to exist um, in spaces where they're welcome and spaces where they're not welcome, how to exist and interact with one another. Like it is both universal and personal at the same time. It's a great series. And it was her kind of first step into being able to realize her vision. So she is now working on um, a short film. She's in post-production and her short film is titled Bad Blood. And she is building on the work that she did in Seeds in Bad Blood which is a coming-of-age story that examines fear and shame and autonomy, but specifically through the construct of black sisterhood and specifically pulling from her Chicago roots. So she's filmed. She's good to go, but she's in post-production now. And one of the things maybe that we just don't talk about in general in film is post-production. And, you know, if you produce a podcast, you know all about post-production. It's when you edit everything <laughs> right. and make it sound good. Like you've done all the filming. You've done all the filming. Principled photography is finished. Your actors have gone home. Right. Your sets are closed down. You have a bunch of raw material in front of you. It has to be edited. It has to be color corrected. You need um, soundtracks. You need sound design. You need credits. You need to reshoot stuff that didn't work in the first place. So it's like a whole nother phase of filmmaking. Um, and most of that second phase of filmmaking unlike principal photography, is not done by directors, is not done by cinematographers. It's done by a whole new roster of professionals. Sound design is a really specific skill. Editing, some directors are editors, but editing is a really specific skill. Um, visual effects, if you have that, these are cr honed craft skills that are like you know, very specific, it's a very specific toolbox and it often includes bringing other people into the mix. Mm -hmm. One of the great things about the independent film community is that there are lots of people within it who are versatile. So you can have <coughs> someone like Caitlin who is a director and a, and a cinematographer, right? Like she can do both, but you know, no one person can do everything. So yeah. she still needs an editor and she still needs specifically what she's working on right now is sound design. And so she's taking advantage of Seed and Spark to help finish Bad Blood and get this work out there um, and get this work shown. So for people who are interested in supporting like new stories and new visions and an entirely new crop of filmmakers coming up, like Caitlin, Seed and Spark is a great place to go to fund this. And it isn't like, a, it isn't the type of thing that needs you to put down, you know, a four-figure gift. Yeah, like, right. 50 bucks in the independent film world goes a long way. That can be a half hour of editing. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, that is a big deal. Um, and so, again, it allows just more autonomy for people who love film or even like it but are invested in having a vibrant film culture around them and being able to see different stuff and hear different stories. Uh, you can be an active part of that through platforms like Seed and Spark and supporting um, filmmakers like Caitlin on it. It's like the democratic promise of the internet that for the most part has fallen apart, has, you know, yes, it's not like actually what played we thought out. thought internet 1.0 was going to be. <laughs> right, right. I mean, in the sense that, like, you're not just depending on your dentist yeah. and your doctor. Yeah. And also it brings people together that may not have normally been brought together and yeah. that only ever like ends up in a collision of really cool new ideas that would not have happened before, which I don't know. It's just so exciting. Yeah. It's so exciting. And it's so nice to know that despite like, you know, these overblown budgets and multi million dollars, like there are still people out there 
that understand the value of a dollar and can really make it work, and they make it work into really good things. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, uh, that's great, Alicia. Thanks. Thanks so much. Appreciate being back. Glad to have you, always. All right. All right. That was Alicia Cosma, director of the Indiana University Cinema. And this has been Interstates, a radio show and podcast from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us, or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org interstates. Speaking of found sound, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Aobon Binder, Aaron Kane, Mark Chilla, Michael Paskash, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Kate Schneider and Alicia Cosma. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Fulmer. We have additional music from airport people. All right, time to take a breath and listen to a place. That was the sound of graduate student workers at Indiana University striking to get recognition of their union this past April. Thanks to Kate Young for that recording. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening. And for